Hello, I'm Harley Schlanger. Welcome to our weekly dialogue with Helga Zeplerusch, the founder and chairwoman of the Schiller Institute. Today is January 20th, 2022. Uh, it seems as though every day there's a, a series of events that on the one side seem to be putting us closer to war, on the other side hold a certain potential, but I, I think people should be really serious about looking at this situation from the standpoint that it was presented by President Putin, that there are certain non-negotiable demands related to Russia's security interests. Now, Helga, we have Secretary of State Blinken is on a tour. Uh, why don't we start with that? He was in Kiev yesterday, Berlin today. What's your reading on what he had to say and what's the, the response? Well, I think, um... These um, days are fateful, much more so than the ordinary citizen probably um, really realizes, because time is running out uh, in more than one way. <clears throat> and, you know, yesterday Blinken was in Kiev. He met with uh, President Zelensky, um, who afterwards said that Ukraine insists to be part of NATO. Now that, you know, for many reasons is is not an option, but the fact that he keeps say, saying it is uh, really a provocation. And, uh, you know, Blinken basically said it's up to Ukraine to decide its own future. But, you know, this is absolutely not the case because, uh, you know, first of all, um, to be a member of NATO requires that a certain standard is fulfilled. First of all, uh, the new member must increase the security of all already existing members. Now that is definitely not the case. And uh, therefore, you know, the idea to keep pushing something which clearly, you know, we have gone through that in a previous podcast um, uh, that, you know, if you don't take care of the security interest of everybody, it's a prescription of war. And to put NATO so closely, uh, directly at the border of Russia, but so closely to Moscow with offensive weapon systems is simply not acceptable. And, you know, therefore, you know, for Zelensky to repeat this is, 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 is clearly either he is still the clown he used to be before he became president or it is a conscious provocation. In any case, uh, you know, then <clears throat> Blinken went to Berlin and today he met with uh, the foreign ministers of Germany, France and Great Britain. He and Baerbock gave a press conference uh, just uh, about an hour ago in which, uh, you know, it was like, I mean, you have really the feeling that uh, <clears throat> the, um, you know the, the whole Blinken trip was designed to to get everything ready to to put this uh, very um, lightweight German foreign minister uh, on a certain course, and she she you know she fell into line. It's really like this. There is a certain type of women which these empires produce. Uh, they mostly are stuck in the foreign ministry or some embassy ambassador position. And it's like gun women. They look very tough, but they have no soul. They have no heart, but they are willful instruments to carry out the policy of the empire. And that is really the impression what Baerbock 
uh, uh, made. And I just read today a very funny um, descriptions um, <clears throat> mentioned in, in an alternative um, uh, news blog, quoting a former very popular German actress called Heidi Kabel, who said that the final uh, proof of emancipation is when a, an absolutely incapable woman gets into a very high position and uh, characterizing a Baerbock. And I thought this was really very, very fitting um, because, you know, if you look at, there is this German uh, German uh, word for gun woman, which is called Flinton vibe. So, you know, it, it, it is this idea of an emancipation, which is not a true sovereign identity of a woman, but just this this uh, puppet, you know, this, anyway, I could go on, I probably will write something about the subject sometimes in the future. But, you know, then tomorrow, uh, naturally, Blinken will have this uh, very important meeting with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. And, you know, uh, you know, I think that the Russians have reiterated and Lavrov himself has repeatedly said it, they expect written, or written answer uh, to the request to have, you know, written guarantees for the security interest of, of Russia, having the two demands that NATO should not expand eastward and that uh, Ukraine should not become a NATO member for the same reason, you know, that it, it violates the security interest of, of Russia. Now, Ursula von der Leyen is one of these um, gun women, you know, pretending to be so tough, but, you know, no soul there. Uh, she, in her speech to Davos, uh, basically also said the, thing, the same tone, you know, that <clears throat> Russia has no right to declare spheres of influence. Well, the reality is, I mean, if you look at NATO, if you look at the alliance of so-called democracies, what, what else is that as a sphere of influence? You know, I mean, they have spheres of influence all over the world. And therefore, you know, I mean, I think the, the audience really has to start to listen to these narratives because they are such a double speak and double standard uh, that it's uh, it's really designed to completely confuse uh, people. So what will happen tomorrow? Well, hopefully President Biden uh, will have instructed uh, Blinken uh, to give a response, um, you know, at least some response which which approximates the demands of of russia um i have no idea if this will happen biden just gave a press conference where he was a little bit unclear you know he said that well maybe if there is a minor incursion in by russia into ukraine the response will be not so big but if it's really a, a major invasion then you know, there will be traumatic, draconian responses. Then naturally the whole world and <clears throat> the journalists jumped all over him and the State Department immediately corrected it as if Biden would not be clear in what he's saying. But the reality is, you know, I mean, we had indications in the past that Biden wanted to have some kind of a careful move towards stability, but then he is surrounded by this incredible military industrial complex, uh, the whole State Department apparatus. So it's a very tricky situation. And I, I don't know what will happen tomorrow, but 
I think if um, if there is uh, no response, uh, Putin has said very clearly that there will be a, a technical military response, and that is a very uh, you know very uh, uh, clear warning that that uh, Russia will take measures of. Uh, making sure that there will be a reciprocal, a reciprocal reaction, uh, which would bring us very quickly into a, a very uh, um, advanced situation. And if things go wrong, we, we would be very quickly on the road to World War III. Now, Helga, there was some indication that Biden might be talking about a follow-up summit with Putin, depending on what happens uh, with the meeting tomorrow. But I want to get back to the Blinken tour for a moment. Uh, when he was in Berlin, there's been some back and forth about the Germans uh, holding back a little bit from the war drive, uh, not providing weapons to Ukraine. Uh, was there any indication from the talks that Blinken had that there was a German resistance to this drive for war? Yes, um, even Baerbock, um, you know, she, I mean, she chose the form to say, we with our history, you know, are very hesitant on weapons export, which, you know, is at least doesn't matter what the, how she put it. I think it's good because the UK and the United States uh, did send weapons uh, to uh, Ukraine. According to Blinken, they are all defensive weapons, but, you know, most of these weapons uh, can very quickly turn into offensive weapons as well. And there is a report from Reuters, which I take with a grain of salt because it's Reuters, but they claim, uh, this was just a few hours ago, that the State Department cleared the three Baltic states uh, to allow them to export weapons they have from the United States uh, to Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that that is a whole other uh, dimension of it, which clearly is is building up uh, the provocation. There was a very interesting interview with the former um, <clears throat> uh, general inspector of the Bundeswehr, General Kujat, in in the Deutschlandfunk, in which he basically uh, said a couple of things which I think are very clear-headed, and it shows you that if you are a military, you don't have to be a warmonger, but you can actually be concerned about stability, which you know a good military uh, function uh, should be. He said, it's very good that Germany is not sending weapons because to send weapons to Ukraine right now is not stabilizing the situation, but to the contrary, it's escalating the situation. And he also, um, you know, said you have to, to you have to be able to take the Russian viewpoint into your own consideration, and it is very clear that with NATO having troops already uh, in Ukraine, having drills, having weapons there, um, and naturally with the prospect of uh, NATO membership, even that this field that Russia feels threatened by that, and you have to take that into account. And he even referred to uh, a, a speech by Bush Sr. from 89, where Bush Sr. at that time had admitted that you have to take the security interest of Russia into account. And that is the, so basic, you know, that you sometimes wonder how these uh, nowadays politicians forget such a, a basic consideration that you cannot have any peace without 
taking the security interest of everybody into account. So he also, you know, uh, again, reminded people that there is actually no way how Ukraine could uh, become a NATO member because it does not fulfill the standards which, um, you know, are required. The, the most important one that it, it should increase the security of the in, of the already existing members and not do the opposite. Uh, apart from the fact that one hardly can call Ukraine a democracy right now, given the extremely, uh, <clears throat> you know, extremely complicated composition of its uh, political forces, which includes many elements which are everything but democratic. So. I think that in Germany there is a certain a certain um, understanding. You know, there were also many former diplomats and military people who basically appealed to go back to the tradition of Willy Brandt um, and have a peaceful coexistence and dialogue. But the problem is with such a foreign minister with a real lightweight and and you know obviously is the perfect tool of NATO. And um, I, I can only say what happened to the Greens who used to be a peace party. You know, they have obviously long forgotten that, you know, ever since Joschka Fischer agreed to the NATO war in Yugoslavia uh, in 1999, they have degenerated into the war party. And now they are uh, the Green reset, the Green policy and the war party are identical. So I think this is very bad for Germany and I can only hope that more and more people are waking up and that this uh, this uh, green foreign minister is uh, hopefully a, a question of not too long in the future. You mentioned before about the British providing weapons to Ukraine. Uh, there are reports that the British have sent uh, military training uh, networks and possible also maybe mercenary CIA types to carry out sabotage or false flag operations against the Russians in Ukraine uh, or against the pro-Russian forces in the Donbass. So that, that's something that people should keep an eye on. I, I want to get back to the reaction, both pro and con, the, the war versus the anti-war. Uh, on the one side, you have seven U.S. senators who just came back from Kiev basically saying that Biden's got to toughen up, he's got to do something. I'd like your thoughts on that. And then on the other side, I had a very interesting article from David Pine in the National Interest, which is an old conservative publication, but in which he uh, joined a, another Russian analyst, uh, Gilbert Doctorow, who are both saying that the US should recognize that Putin is expressing legitimate concerns. Uh, so I, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the on the one side, the crazy war hawks from the U.S. Senate, and on the other side, the fact that some people are uh, making the point that, that these are serious security concerns for Russia. Yes, this delegation of uh, seven senators, uh, again, you know, it's the Senator Wicked uh, who um, has already come out talking for the, you know, use of uh, first, first use of nuclear weapons uh, against Russia, um, which he never got really, I mean, that, that shows you the state of affairs. I mean, he was never really uh, repudiated by, by anybody for having said that. 
um, and that despite the fact that the five permanent nuclear powers came out uh, to say that since nuclear war cannot be won, it must never be fought, which was important. But, you know, I mean, if, if that does not lead to, for example, President Biden instructing uh, Strategic Command um, General uh, or Admiral Richards to instruct the Pentagon to change his instruction from February last year that nuclear war is now likely to exchange that with this with the statement nuclear war can never be won and therefore must never be fought you know the the question is is it really is it really american policy or is it just words now senator wicket uh this time was running around in in ukraine saying uh the russians should get a bloody nose i mean he, this guy is is obviously you know, a complete barbarian and doesn't even have civilized language. This is very dangerous. I mean, some people have lost any kind of civilized language and behavior. And I think this article by by Pine in the National Interest, which you refer to, uh, I think people should should really read it because the quote from uh, Gilbert Doktorov and and what what Pine himself writes. Um, is is really true because when he said when when the Russians do not get an agreement uh, in a written form that you know secure that guarantees their security, and they go for what Putin calls the retaliatory uh, military technical response, what that could look like, and you know that's obviously a hypothesis about an informed one, they could move uh, the SS twenty four. Iskander M uh, missiles, short-range missiles to Belarus and to Kaliningrad, um, and at the same time have the Sirkon sea-launched uh, uh, cruise missile put in front of the coast of Washington. And you know, then he refers to a previous quote from <coughs> some Russian saying that these uh, missiles could hit uh, Washington more quickly. And then the president of the United States would have time to enter Air Force One. Uh, now that basically should give people a sense what we are talking about. We are talking about a reversed Cuban missile crisis because if NATO insists to put these offensive weapon systems um, along the Russian border, um, you know that is exactly the same thing like when the Russians put. Uh, their hypersonic missiles on submarines in front of the of the capital of the United States. So, you know, this is how dangerous it is. And I think we really have to understand that if this goes any further, the danger that this will get out of control is is more likely than not. Another element which, you know, people should should be aware of that, you know, there is now all this talk about regime change in Belarus. Um, you know, that all this talk, which has all the key and code, which we know already from Kazakhstan and from other so-called autocratic regimes, that when, when the Western media and the Western politicians are starting to say, oh, the population of Belarus uh, is not approving of Lukashenko, and you know, these are the signs that there is a color revolution uh, in, in, in progress. 
and you know the deputy defense minister of russia alexander fomin has just put out a press has said in a press conference that uh, russia is going to have joint maneuvers with belarus starting on february 9th and naturally this is being construed then by the nato side again that you know this is part of the planned russian attack on ukraine which you know they are talking since months now that this will happen in in january uh beginning of february but you know this is a situation where both sides you know are on the edge and we have to step back from this you know brinkmanship brinkmanship with thermonuclear weapons and, and the potential of extinction of civilization is just a sign of absolute madness. And I really think that, you know, depending what happens tomorrow in the discussion, uh, we could be in, uh, you know, if, if the thing goes negative, we could be in a, in a absolute super confrontation, Cuban, Cuban missile crisis type of confrontation uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, one of the things that comes up around Belarus is the, the narrative on the Russian troop mobilization. The Russians are massing troops on the Ukraine border. Now they're massing troops on the Belarus border. They never mention that half the Ukrainian army is camped on the other side of the Dnieper River facing the Donbass. And the Ukrainians have also sent troops into the, uh, to the border with Belarus. But I think the other thing on this color revolution question, which, which people have to think about, is the way the Russians responded in Kazakhstan, where Putin said there will be no more color revolutions, and they, they acted very quickly to counter that. Now, the, Kazakhstan brings up a, a question that I think is, is quite significant, which is the overall picture uh, in the Central Asia, uh, South Asia. There was just the trip by the Iranian president to Moscow, where they signed a major agreement. Uh, how does that fit into this whole scenario? Well, there is at the, at the one side, you have the, <clears throat> the effort, um, you know, by a collapsing financial system, the neoliberal system to go for encirclement of Russia, encirclement of China, stopping the rise of China in particular, uh, trying to contain uh, Russia, even have regime change against Russia and China. But that is not the whole reality because, you know, that is a policy which is based on, you know, military power, on, on you know, so-called alliances uh, of democracies, but there is no content to it because the economy is collapsing of, of that uh, system, while at the same time, you know, while the United States last year had a, a economic uh, collapse of one or two percent, China had an increase of the GDP of 8.1 percent. And the Belt and Road Initiative is progressing despite all of these difficulties and more and more countries are joining it. So in the recent period, there was a very, very important memorandum of understanding between uh, China and Syria. Uh, to collaborate on the Belt and Road Initiative, which gives this country the chance to build up its economy after uh, you know many years of war, which you know the Europeans and, and everybody in the West has been denying 
uh, because they said as long as Assad is there, we will not participate in any reconstruction, even if more than 90% of the people of Syria are absolutely at a starvation level as well. But with China's help, uh, I think this is now shifting very clearly. In Iraq, you have right now a mass movement, and I saw the TV clips myself, a mass movement of people demanding the oil for technology deal with China, which the government is trying to block, but the majority of the population really wants because they see in that an absolute possibility to improve an otherwise devastated Iraqi uh, economy. And you know, <clears throat> then you have the deal now between Iran and Russia after Iran has already, uh, I think, 30-year agreement with China on the Belt and Road Initiative. They have now a 20-year uh, cooperation agreement with Russia, uh, also involving oil and, and many other uh, areas. And, uh, you know, President Raisi is just uh, in Russia um, and obviously Iran, and they will have joint military maneuvers, Russia, China, Iran shortly. Uh, so you can see that there is a complete realignment uh, going on uh, because, you know, the model of the Belt and Road Initiative is just so much more attractive. Now, that obviously is not to the liking of uh, the same uh, forces of empire because, you know, now there is this big focus on the GPO, uh, GPCOA negotiations in Vienna. Uh, which, as you know, the United States had pulled out of during the Trump administration. And naturally, then Iran continued with its nuclear program um, and, you know, made certain progress, which they would not have made if the JPCOA treatment, uh, treaty would have been uh, in existence. Now, there's an effort to go back to it, but, you know, a, a lot of pressure on the Iran um, to... Um, you know, to, to basically move back on its uh, improvements on enrichment and, and similar uh, developments. And there's always the danger that, you know, there could be also some nuclear or some uh, preemptive uh, military move coming from the side of Israel against Iran. So we are sitting on a powder keg, but, you know, I think that the military side of it looks more and more to the advantage of Russia, China, who have a very strong uh, partnership economically, politically, but also militarily increasingly. So it is a, a situation which is not so clear. Uh, you know, I, I think the danger of war is what, what people should be concerned with. But, you know, from the standpoint of the dynamic, um, I think the directionality goes very clearly in the direction of the Belt and Road Cooperation because many nations uh, see it much more um, at their advantage to economically cooperate rather than have geopolitical games. Now, one thing I, sh I forgot to mention in the context of this uh, uh, article by, by, by Payne, uh, Pine and, and uh, the quotes from Doktorov, uh, they basically said, you know, that if it comes to a situation, you know, where military action would occur, um, you know, between Russia and, and um, NATO, then immediately 
one could expect China to move on Taiwan, North Korea move on South Korea, and that way you would have a world war, but it would overstretch um, you know, the US in such a way that, you know, everybody would move at the same time. So this, I think people should think that through, you know, this is, this is the powder keg on which we are sitting. And this is why we are saying so emphatically that we have to find a way of moving to a new paradigm of new international relations and cooperation and address the urgent issues which face all of humanity and not continue with these geopolitical games. And Helga, the review that you just gave of the momentum around the Belt and Road Initiative and for trade and cooperation, this is really ultimately the reason why the transatlantic powers, especially the, the city of London and the, the Wall Street interests are so upset at Russia and China because they can see something new emerging out of Eurasia. Now in that context, you just had a conference uh, last weekend on Afghanistan, the potential for Afghanistan, the reconstruction of Afghanistan becoming a cooperative venture that would not only be good for Afghanistan, but would demonstrate the alternative to this war policy. Uh, can you just say something briefly, because we're almost out of time, just briefly on how that conference went and people can watch it on the schillerinstitute.com. Yes, that was uh, quite important because, you know, it is very clear that, you know, Afghanistan, um, you know, on the one side, you know, the, according to the UN, um, 8.7 million people are in the process of starvation right now. And we, we, we just can guess how many children have died already in the cold and without food. This is the most heartbreaking story uh, of the planet right now and you know we have to keep the focus on demanding you know that the uh, US and, and European banks that they release the funds which belong to Afghanistan which they are holding back because they claim they don't want to make to, to, to don't give it to the Taliban but you know I mean you have right now a genocide going on in Afghanistan where you know more than 24 million people are in danger of not outliving the winter, according to the World Food Program. And, uh, you know, there must be the release. I mean, Putin has demanded uh, that all these um, U.S. Treasury and European banks release the funds. Uh, UN General Secretary Guterres has demanded it. And I think, you know, everybody who is concerned should help us to put pressure on the governments that these funds be released because this is more than 9 billion in the US and I don't know how many, maybe a couple of hundred million in, in European banks, that money would immediately give access to buy food, to buy medicine. Uh, naturally, there is a lot going on. India, for example, you know, they delivered quite a large number of wheat. Uh, they went through Pakistan. This is very important. Uh, because of the previous tensions between India and Pakistan that, you know, there is now, at least on the humanitarian uh, aid, this kind of collaboration. And that gives you a sense that, you know, if you, if you are confronted with such an incredible catastrophe, you have to be able to put your geopolitical concerns on the backstage and, and just work together to 
to address this crisis. And you know, what this was the subject of the conference, uh, not the first time, but we had several major conferences since uh, July, and we had important speakers. You know, it was. Uh, uh, I, I, I can only advise you to go. We had some real experts, you know, the former CIA station chief from Kabul, uh, then a very important pro professor uh, from Afghanistan who is now living in Germany, who gave an absolute fascinating history of Afghanistan and, you know, many other people. And obviously I'm continuously pushed uh, this project of the Operation Ibn Sina, uh, because you know Ibn Sina was one of the absolute great physicians of world history. He comes from uh, his father comes from Bark, which is um, near Maza Asharif, which is in north of Afghanistan, and he himself is born near Bukhara in Uzbekistan, but thousand years ago, and he he was the person who discovered. The methodology of quarantine, which obviously is of very big significance now in the time of the pandemic. And he was also one of the outstanding thinkers who influenced uh, not only the Islamic world, but also European philosophy, which is why he's called in the West Avicenna. He had influence of uh, <clears throat> Thomas of Aquinas, on Albertus Magnus, on Dante, on Nicolas of Cus, and many others. So it is a, a symbol of helping Afghanistan to not only solve its medical problem, but also to find, again, a rallying point for a hopeful future. Um, and, you know, I mentioned um, in another presentation uh, that even Sina also developed this notion about the necessary existent. The question is, you know, is the universe, has it been created at once or is it eternal? Now, this is not an old question, but it will come up with the findings of the James Webb telescope because they try to go back almost 14 billion years in time to find out what was happening around the Big Bang. Uh, supposedly the Big Bang, was there something before or did it all start there? So these philosophical questions, you know, they are not out of what we should be concerned with, but they are, you know, that's the kind of thinking one has to elevate the mind to, uh, to be able to think the new paradigm and think about the fundamental issues of mankind. And, you know, why are we here? What is the uh, identity of humanity and, and, and how should we think about things? So it was a quite interesting, um, conference and I can only invite you to go and look at the speeches because you find hardly such a combination of experts uh, elsewhere. Helga, you opened the discussion today saying these are fateful days, time is running out. This actually is what Friedrich Schiller called a punctum saliens, a moment when people must make a decision to act. And I think you've given people a lot to think about. Thanks for joining us today and people should, as you recommended, go to the Schiller Institute website and keep your eyes open for upcoming conferences. So Helga, thanks for joining us today. Till next week. <laughs>